This episode is going to talk about some sensitive subject matter, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the No Nonsense Anti-Racism Podcast. For Indigenous History Month, we've been talking about systemic racism that Canada's Indigenous people have faced and continue to resist. In light of the conversation on the legacy of residential schools, we dedicated our first episode of the month to going over its impact on the over 150,000 survivors and their families. Last week, we talked to some amazing folks from Assembly of Seven Generations about the amazing youth programming and land-based activities that they do. They were so much fun to talk to. Go check out their work and support that organization. Today, we're going to dive into a pressing issue that all Canadians need to be more aware of. You may have seen the abbreviation MMIW, and it stands for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. The abbreviation continues, actually. It's MMIWG2S for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit Folks. Maybe you've seen this topic in the news, or you saw something on social media, or maybe you heard somebody mention something about it, but you didn't know what it was. My first encounter with this topic started in 2015 with the trial of Bradley Barton for the murder of Cindy Gladue. Some of you may remember this case. It was all anybody talked about for several disturbing reasons. Cindy Gladue was a 36-year-old mother, daughter, and Cree woman who bled to death in a hotel bathroom in 2011 after a sexual encounter with Bradley Barton. He was a long-distance truck driver from Ontario who met Gladue in Alberta. They spent two nights together, but on the second night, Barton called 911, reporting the discovery of an unknown woman in the bathtub. This case was widely talked about for several reasons. Firstly, Barton had been first found not guilty in her death to first-degree murder as well as manslaughter charges, which was a horrendous miscarriage of justice because, reason number two, Barton had originally lied about his relationship with Cladue. She was a sex worker, and Barton left her in the hotel room to bleed to death. There was definitely the narrative floating around in the media asking why she was a sex worker, asking questions about her lifestyle choices, and this is all bullshit and nonsense, but I don't have time to break down the history of misogyny and discrimination against sex workers, so we'll just leave it at that, but this could be an entire episode on its own. The third reason this was so disturbing is because during the trial, the defense brought as evidence Gladue's pelvis. Not a replica, not a photograph or a drawing, but her actual physical pelvis to demonstrate the injuries that she died from and to somehow defend Barton against these charges in defiance of her cultural burial protocols. She was literally reduced to just this body part, a sexual body part. Cinti Gladue's case was one of many, of many Indigenous women, girls, LGBTQ plus community members whose deaths or disappearances are part of a larger disastrous legacy of colonization and systemic racism. As of 2013, there were 225 unsolved cases of either missing or murdered Indigenous women. Violence against women in general is a significant societal issue. According to the World Health Organization, 
Violence against women affects one-third of women around the world and represents a health problem of epidemic proportions. Between 1980 to 2012, there were 20,313 homicides across Canada. 32% of these cases were female victims. The rate of victimization among Indigenous women is close to three times higher than that of non-Indigenous women. Now, this isn't anything new. Many Indigenous organizations, activists, and community members have long been raising concerns about the level of racialized and gendered violence directed towards Indigenous women and girls. Indigenous women are overrepresented as victims of sexual and physical violence and homicide and are five times more likely to experience a violent death than non-Indigenous Canadian women. This is staggering. And this happens for a number of reasons. Due to socioeconomic gaps, Indigenous women, girls, and Two-Spirit folks are vulnerable in many ways, and many factors can contribute to increased risk of violence. For example, the lack of public transportation between rural and urban communities leave many to rely on hitchhiking as a form of transportation. Homelessness and poverty contributes to increased chances of encountering violence. Girls aging out of the foster care system with little transition support face higher risks of being lured by traffickers or going into precarious sex work. This issue of murdered and missing Indigenous women, girls, and Two-Spirit folks gained a lot of media attention after Amnesty International published a report called Stolen Sisters, a human rights response to violence and discrimination against Indigenous women in Canada, which was published in 2014, as well as a report called No More Stolen Sisters in 2009. These Amnesty reports, bolstered by the work of Indigenous activists and community members, put out a number of positions and calls for action. They highlighted stories of women who have experienced violence and intended to raise awareness about this issue. They noted the lack of reporting and statistical analysis by police and government bodies. There's also a lot of research that was done and conducted by the Native Women's Association of Canada, which established a database for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. In 2013, the RCMP launched an investigation into this problem and published a report in 2014. Their report states that from 1980 to 2012, 1,017 Indigenous women had been murdered in this period, and they made up 16% of the total of all female homicides in Canada. A national inquiry was launched by the federal government in December of 2015, and the final report was completed and published in 2019. It declared that violence against Indigenous women and girls is, quote-unquote, a national tragedy of epic proportion. And commissioners called for a new era in relationships, in the relationship between Indigenous women, girls, LGBTQ plus folks, and Canadian people. The federal response to this was an announcement of a national inquiry that we're going to discuss in a moment. We'll go into detail about it. The sexualized violence against Indigenous women is both gendered and racialized, with its origins in ongoing colonialism and white supremacy. Discourse on this topic suggests that a deeper entrenchment of colonial patriarchy exists as to why the law routinely minimizes the violence that is happening against Indigenous women. Patriarchy produces the context in which we live where gendered violence is normalized, 
but the dehumanization of indigenous women is racialized and gendered as well. And this white supremacist thinking affects all aspects of our society, including the media representation and the kind of stereotypes that are shared about indigenous peoples. The media is a powerful force for perpetuating biases and stereotypes about indigenous groups. The traditional mainstream media has framed indigenous issues in a paternalistic way, reinforcing negative stereotypes. Some data that was collected from Canadian media print materials on violence against women from the years 2006 to 2009 identified two dominating discourses about missing and murdered Indigenous women. The first was that blame is placed on the victims, and second, that the fault lies with those who live a risky lifestyle, such as the kind of narratives that were being pushed during the trial of Bradley Barton for the murder of Cindy Gladue. Media plays a role in perpetuating racialized and gender biases with its viewers and readers against missing and murdered Indigenous women. I think people who are unfamiliar with these sorts of issues can sometimes justify, you know, racist stereotypes or jokes or whatever, Mm -hmm. but it's never just that, right? Like these entrenched attitudes and beliefs actually do manifest in the ways in which the state interacts with Indigenous women and girls. So it's Mm -hmm. not just a racist joke or a racist stereotype. There are real-life devastating consequences for many folks in Canada who are not white, right? That was Alicia Corbett. I spoke to her about this topic because she has a lot of knowledge on it. Alicia is a PhD candidate in the Department of Political Studies at Queen's University. Hi, Alicia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. Absolutely. So happy to have you. Alicia, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So uh, my name is Alicia. I am a Cherokee descendant, but I'm not an enrolled member of Cherokee Nation. I currently live on the traditional and unceded territory of the Algonquin peoples in the Ottawa Valley region. I am currently doing my PhD at Queen's University in Political Studies. And I was a senior researcher with the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. That must have been quite an experience. Can you tell us what are some of the biggest misconceptions that you've come across on this issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit folk from the average Canadian? Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, there's one sort of overarching misconception, and that that's really problematic is that I don't think a lot of non-Indigenous folks in Canada or our allies see this as a genocide. So that to me is the biggest and uh, most damning misconception because that, in my opinion, what can hinder progress in actually redressing this violence, right? So if, if the average person doesn't actually see it for what it is, then the likelihood that things are going to change and there's going to be pressure put on the government or pressure for you yourself to change mm-hmm. uh, is very little. And so I think that misconception stems from two, two reasons, sort of. And that is, one is, I don't think that the average Canadian wants to acknowledge the fact that it's a genocide, because when you acknowledge something like that, then that entails responsibility, right? So if you acknowledge that you're part of the problem, then you have to be part of the solution. And I don't think that the average Canadian is willing to to do that. 
And secondly, I think, and I don't know why this is the case, but I find that most folks who challenge the finding of genocide do so based on like a comparative perspective, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So they'll say things like, well, you know, it's not a genocide. You know, the, the Rwandan genocide was a genocide. The Holocaust was a genocide, but this isn't a genocide. And it's very frustrating because based on the UN's definition of genocide, there is no threshold for the amount of violence, right? Mm-hmm. Like there, it's not saying, you know, 5% of people have to be affected by the violence or 100%. And it's also not done based on, on a time length, right? So I think individuals who debate or are just rejecting this finding also say, well, they're looking at the sheer number of lives lost over a short amount of time. Whereas the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls genocide is a slow burn, right? It's happening Mm -hmm. over time and it's continuing to happen. And so I think that it's really fruitless to to view Mm -hmm. the issue of genocide in a comparative lens. But I think a lot of folks do. And again, I'm not, I don't know why that is the case, but it really just doesn't make any sense and it's not productive in any way. And then the other misconception that I see all the time is that, well, the violence committed against Indigenous women and girls is done by Indigenous men. Okay, sure. I'm sure some of the violence is committed by Indigenous men. However, the majority of the violence is not. And in fact, you know, Indigenous women are three times more likely to be killed by a stranger than their non-Indigenous counterparts. So it's just not based in any sort of truth or reality. And I think that's a big uh, misconception that has a lot of, um, you know, negative consequences. Because again, if we're shifting the blame to within Indigenous communities and saying, well, you are causing the violence to your own peoples, then again, there's no accountability to sort of redress the violence on a larger systemic level or at an individual level, right? So if we can shift it and say, well, we're not a part of the problem, then we don't have to be a part of the solution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you bring up so many interesting points. I think especially around addressing this as a genocide Mm -hmm. really will help us reframe our thinking about Mm -hmm. how just deep how entrenched this kind of discrimination and oppression is against indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit folk in this country and how systemic it is because it isn't just one-off. It's happening um, for a number of of systemic reasons, which we we cover in the podcast. And your point about your third point about how there is this misconception that it's committed by indigenous men reminds me of this, like the ridiculous things people say, mostly in the States when they say like black on black violence. I was just Uh, about to say that. Yeah. It's the same rhetoric that unfortunately has the same consequences, right? Exactly. We're shifting the blame. And I think too, if we don't call it what it is, which is a genocide, then it, you know, you get this sort of individualistic thinking where, okay, well, it's one individual who committed a crime against another individual, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't see it as this societal and systemic issue that it is. It's so much easier to pass it off as, as you know, individual Um, episodes that aren't actually linked together when they are. Unsurprisingly, the issue of murdered and missing Indigenous women is rooted in this country's racist history of colonization. 
Violence was always central to the colonial project of Canada. And you can see this kind of violence through the dispossession and relocation of Indigenous peoples to reserves, the loss of traditional roles, and the kind of violence that interacts with poverty and is often met with incarceration. Colonization should be viewed as a structure and a means to recognizing how the past informs the present. There are lasting impacts of colonization that we see every single day now. Environmental and land issues, land resource issues, the child welfare system, and ongoing poverty and violence that affect Indigenous people. To fully execute the goal of assimilation, colonization required that Indigenous women's roles be devalued, not only in the colonies, but also within First Nations communities themselves. Violence against Indigenous women and girls started at the beginning of colonization, really. There were high rates of domestic violence against Indigenous women throughout North America. And there were also a lot of stereotypes that reinforced this. There was this image of the Indian princess that gave way to this promiscuous squaw stereotype, which rendered Indigenous women vulnerable to violence and mistreatment. They were sexualized, and this racialized legacy of settler colonialism led to this acceptance of violence. I'm curious to hear, and I mean, it's related to your last point, but um, Mm -hmm. you recently wrote an op-ed and talked about how the residential school system contributes to this issue, missing and murdered Indigenous women, girl, and two-spirit folk. Can you share more on this and how you made the link between these two issues? Well, I think the link is really clear. And I think that's hopefully what the inquiry, that's what we did. And I hope that's what people took from it was that all of these pathways to violence against Indigenous women and girls are linked. You cannot view one issue separately from the other. So you need to have this sort of holistic understanding of the problem. Um, And for me, looking at the link between residential schools and violence against Indigenous women and girls is historical and ongoing. So it's historical in that when Britain and France wanted to colonize Canada, they came here and they created these really like negative, sexist and racist stereotypes about Indigenous women that were so pervasive. They were in government reports. They were in newspapers. They were the attitudes that settlers held and I argue still hold about Indigenous women. Um, And it essentially, you know, created this narrative that Indigenous women are unfit to be mothers. They're immoral. They are somehow more sexually promiscuous or available than white women. And this sort of narrative served two purposes. And one is to excuse sexual violence against Indigenous women and girls because it's sort of like the age-old cliche, you know, she was asking for it. But then secondly, too, it, it justifies the Canadian government's forcible removal of Indigenous children. So if you can frame and create this narrative that these individuals are bad moms, then you can say, well, you know, we're doing a good thing. We are going in and we're taking these children from these individuals who have no idea how to parent or no idea how to be good mothers. And so that served as a huge justification for residential schools. And that type of thinking is still so pervasive in our society today. So for example, if you look at birth alerts, so that's where hospital staff will alert child welfare services 
um, about a newborn baby if they think that the child is in some type of danger or at risk. But study after study has shown that this disproportionately affects and targets Indigenous women. Even when, of course, there's no reason to do that at all, it's these stereotypes that they're bad mothers and they're unfit to be mothers. You can even look back, you know, what, 40, 50 years ago to the 60s scoop, right? And see, again, we're apprehending Indigenous children because we don't think that Indigenous women are capable or good at being mothers. And today, beyond birth alerts, we see this with the fact that Indigenous children are overwhelmingly represented in child welfare services. And we can also see it through forced sterilization. So even though forced sterilization was technically uh, deemed illegal in Canada in the 70s, Indigenous women are still being uh, sterilized against their will and without their consent. And in fact, there were allegations made, I want to say like a month ago, about BC's social services where they were forcibly inserting IUDs into Indigenous girls who were in child uh, welfare services and they were as young as nine years old. So no nine-year-old needs to be on any type of birth control. Mm -hmm. To me, that's just absolutely ludicrous because it suggests that they are somehow sexually mature or available at an exceptionally young age. And it, again, to me, what that symbolizes is we're prepackaging Indigenous girls to be unfit to be mothers or sexually available in a way that would never happen to to white girls who are in the uh, foster care system. And so... To me, this link is really clear and it it's really, unfortunately, it's an attitude and a belief that I think a lot of um, government agencies had and continue to have about Indigenous women. And that, of course, then manifests itself in different policies and practices that we deem to be legitimate. We are going to take a quick break and then we will be right back. We hope you're enjoying these episodes with us. It is really important that we're getting factual, historical, contextually relevant information out there into the universe. We are doing this with the support of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. Thank you. If you are enjoying listening to this podcast, please make sure to write us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps us to get more visibility so that we can reach more people, reach more Canadians, and get knowledge out into the universe. So make sure to write a review wherever you get your podcasts. And now back to the show. So let's dive into some really startling facts. The Native Women's Association of Canada's Sisters in Spirit Initiative created a national database to track the cases of violence against Indigenous women. It was followed by a report called What Their Stories Tell Us, Research Findings from the Sisters in Spirit Initiative, and we're going to link all of these reports in the show notes so you can go and take a look. I highly, highly suggest that you do. The report included a framework for how to address and prevent violence against Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit folk, as well as policy recommendations. It highlighted the need for police accountability and transparency, cultural sensitivity training, and forming good relationships with Indigenous communities. The National Database gathered information on approximately 582 missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit folks. It found that 67% of these are murder cases, 20% were missing persons, 
4% of cases had suspicious deaths, and 9% of them were unknown. Between 2000 and 2008, Indigenous women, girls, and Two-Spirit folks made up approximately 10% of all female homicides in Canada, but only make up about 3% of Canada's female population. So incredibly disproportionate. The Saskatchewan Association of Chiefs of Police reported that almost 59% of missing women and girls in Saskatchewan are of Indigenous ancestry. Another startling fact is that most of these cases involve young women and girls. 55% of these cases involved women and girls under the age of 31. This, as you can imagine, has an intergenerational impact. The majority of women in the database, 88% of them, were mothers. The Native Women's Association of Canada estimates that more than 440 children have been impacted by the disappearance or murder of their mothers. And little is known about what happens to these children after their loss. We know that Canada's child welfare system targets and disproportionately harms Indigenous children. One story that I read about that really stuck with me was the story of Terry Ladue. He was four years old when his mother, Jane Dick Ladue, was killed in 1970 by the man that she was involved with. Terry spoke at the National Inquiry's first round of public hearings in the Yukon. Ladue's family and his four siblings were separated after the death of their mother. Terry and his siblings were raised in foster homes when they weren't at residential schools. Collectively, they suffered sexual, physical, and emotional abuse throughout their childhood while being cut off from their traditions, culture, and their language. He was quoted as saying, The effect it's had on me is very simple. I don't know how to love. I wasn't taught how to love. I have three beautiful boys out there, and I can't even tell them I love them. I don't know what that means. There are no records of Jane's violent murder. And this testimony was among over 50 community members over three days in the Yukon. The testimony is just one demonstration of, of many across this country of what it means to lose a mother, a sister, a daughter, any kind, any family member, anyone that you really love in such a violent way. The majority of cases do occur in urban areas, but resources are also needed in rural and on-reserve communities. The Native Women's Association of Canada report also found that only 53% of murder cases involving Indigenous women and girls have led to charges of homicide. Over 40% remain unsolved, but the clearance rate does vary by province. Just to compare, the national clearance rate for homicides in Canada was 85% in 2005. So with all of these absolutely horrifying and startling facts, the government of Canada did respond with initiating a national inquiry. What is this inquiry, you might be wondering. In Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's speech to the Assembly of First Nations 36th Annual General Assembly in 2015, he remarked that his government would renew its relationship with Indigenous people. He announced his commitment to enacting recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission by launching an inquiry into the systemic problems of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit folk. The inquiry was officially launched the 1st of September 2016, and the first public hearings started in the Yukon in 2017. 
Over 2,380 people participated in these hearings. 468 family members and survivors shared their experiences and recommendations at 15 community hearings across the country. Over 270 family members shared stories in private sessions. And nearly 750 people shared statements. The inquiry's mandate was to report on the systemic causes of all forms of violence against Indigenous women and girls in Canada, including the underlying social, economic, cultural, institutional, and historical causes that contribute to the ongoing violence and particular vulnerabilities of Indigenous women and girls in Canada, as well as institutional policies and practices to be implemented in response to the violence that is experienced by Indigenous women and girls in Canada. The guiding principles for the inquiry was, our women and girls are sacred. And the core tenets of the approach that they were to take was that family-first, trauma-informed, and decolonized process would take place. The final report produced by the inquiry was called Reclaiming Power and Place, the final reports of the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, and was split into two volumes, 1A and 1B. This report was over 1,200 pages long and had 231 calls for justice. Now, it's a very lengthy report, and I highly doubt that you're going to go and read all 1,200 pages, but we will link it in the show notes because you should take a look. There are different sections of the report that have to do with the overall framework and context, so the role and relationships um, between Indigenous peoples and the history of colonization in Canada. It also has chapters that discuss how to center relationships to end violence, a chapter on power and place. One quote from that chapter in particular is that, Women are the heart of their nations and communities. Their distinctive roles and responsibilities are crucial to helping communities thrive. When women and gender diverse people are violently taken away, their absence has ripple effects that throw entire communities out of balance and into further danger. There's also a chapter about accountability and human rights tools. There's another section of the report that also goes into the different testimonies from families and survivors which is all really important parts of the documenting the kinds of stories from survivors. The inquiry was not always a smooth process, though, and they did have trouble getting off the ground in the first place. There were a lot of delays. There were some high-profile resignations. Many people felt like the process was too colonial an approach, and there were some questionable funding practices as well. But overall, the inquiry did come out with the 231 calls for justice and is a framework for which the government has very recently announced an action plan to put the recommendations into practice. I'd love to talk about your experience working um, on the national inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two spirits, because you were working on that. You were as a researcher. There was a lot of anticipation on this inquiry, but it did devolve and it hasn't maybe progressed as far as a lot of folks had hoped. Mm-hmm. Can you share a little bit from your own perspective what you think some of the reasons this work hasn't really started or been accepted more widely? Yeah, well, I would say, so the inquiry, you know, released its final report. There were 231 calls to justice that, you know, ranged from shifting attitudes and beliefs, like 
which is sort of what I worked on a little bit more, as well as, you know, larger structural policy changes around policing, around um, housing, around infrastructure. So big, real concrete things that lend themselves very well to government policy. I think that there was a lot of anticipation that the federal government would implement a national action plan because that was one of our first calls to justice was that, okay, we've done the work now. We've told you what you need to do. Now you need to make a plan to actually do it. Um, And so The federal government did come out with their national action plan this June 3rd. But again, it has actually been met with a lot of criticism from different uh, community organizations and activists in that it's not implementing all 231 calls to justice. I think there's a lot of great ideas in the federal government's action plan. It's just hard to see how those are going to actually be materialized. So I think that's where there was sort of a lot of hope and a lot of waiting for this national action plan to happen. Let's make some concrete policies that are actually going to change the lives and the safety of Indigenous women and girls, right? Because at at the end of the day, like that's the top priority and that's the top concern is that uh, is the safety. And I think a lot of I think a lot of folks, and rightfully so, are just very frustrated with how slow government processes can be, as well as, you know, unfortunately, Indigenous women and girls, even after the launch of the inquiry, are still going missing and are still being murdered at the same rate as before. So I think there's a lot of, and again, rightfully so, frustration and and anger that things are not changing. I think sometimes too at the government level or at, you know, even at a, at a larger organizational level, it's hard to sort of express the realities of folks who are not in those organizations who are actually experiencing this violence and try and materialize that into policy, if that makes sense. Right. Like, I think that's such a challenge because, you know, especially with violence against Indigenous women and girls, because, you know, Indigenous peoples are not a monolith. You can't have a pan-Indigenous approach to redressing this violence because the violence is going to look different for folks living in urban communities than it is for folks living on reserves. It's going to look different for folks who are in Ontario versus folks who are in BC. It's so diverse that I think sometimes it's hard to tackle that in a in a policy. Absolutely. I think it's also indicative of some the difference in terms of like how would an indigenous how would a community or an organization address some of these and then what can how can that be reflected in policy and then what does that look like in a sustainable way there's definitely a disconnect so what's being done about it we heard about the national inquiry and on june 3rd the government announced its action plan but beyond just what's happening from a policy level by the government There is so much work that has been happening at a community level. The work of protecting and making visible this issue has been pushed for and advocated by Indigenous communities themselves for a very long time, specifically by advocates who are women and girls who themselves are at the highest risk of violence. There's a campaign called the Red Dress Project, uh, Walking With Our Sisters campaign, that constantly remind us as Canadians about this challenge of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit folk. The databases themselves that have been created by the Native Women Association of Canada is also another way in which this, this big challenge is being addressed. 
There is no systematic national database available through Canadian policing or government bodies, which is such, such a shame to hear. And so the Native Women's Association of Canada stepped up to provide this information. As I had mentioned, it was created through the Sisters in Spirit Project, and it aims to implement a relationship-based approach to the research because it utilizes interviews and statistical research to fill the database. There's a campaign called Hashtag MINext. It's a visibility campaign that links the names and faces to the ongoing violence and is focused on bringing to view those at risk. It's received a lot of widespread national print, television, radio, and online coverage, which is fantastic. And it was actually the same hashtag used in the U.S. following the 2013 shooting of Trayvon Martin. So the activism that is happening on the ground is a reminder from Indigenous folks to the rest of us that we need to pay attention to this issue and we need to pay attention now. This is a genocide, plain and simple. It is a very serious issue that really cannot continue to be pulled down by bureaucracy because every moment that we wait, more Indigenous women, girls, and Two-Spirit folks are at risk of violence. This has sort of been like a a side thought of mine for the last couple of years is trying to make the inquiries findings uh, more accessible to the average Canadian, because I know it's so easy to tell the average Canadian, you know, read the report, read the reports, but I don't think that the average Canadian will. And so how do you distill this information in a way that grapples with the complexities of it, but synthesizes it in a way that's digestible. And one, one point that I think we need to do as activists or academics or government workers or whatever, is I think we need to clearly lay out the terms of genocide, which we do in the report. But again, I don't think everybody's going to read the report and make clear connections to each one of those points of the UN's definition of genocide. You know, I think that makes it super crystal clear in a way that, uh, you know, much less easy to argue. Yeah, that's a fantastic takeaway. For for those of us working in this space, education is so important, but mm-hmm. the way in which we in, inform the average person who may or may not have any kind of foundational knowledge on this challenge yeah. is, is something to think about. It's great that you're doing the work of education, but after all of this requires action. Make sure to learn more about the great work that these organizations are doing. Support them however you can, whether it's sharing their resources out, following them on social media, donating to their causes, and if possible, attend their events. I want to thank Alicia for joining today's episode and discussion. Go read her fantastic op-ed in the Ottawa Citizen. It's linked in the show notes. If you're enjoying listening to the podcast, please make sure to write us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts, because that helps us get more visibility so that we can reach the ears of as many Canadians as possible and get this knowledge out there. Like and follow us on Instagram and engage with us in the conversations. Today's episode was researched by Beverly Osuzua. It was produced by Nicola. Jade Sullivan manages our social media. My name is Nuri Yunus. Thank you for joining us and we will see you next week.